0: Welcome teacher friend, I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new
1: literacy curriculum which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today.
0: Hi everyone, welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. We are here today with our favorite girl in the world, Natalie Wexler. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here, Natalie.
1: We're so so excited.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm delighted to be here, really. I'm very excited myself. Thank you. Would you mind sharing a bit about yourself, just to um, in case folks don't know you or are unfamiliar with you? um, Which is
1: just crazy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It is conceivable. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sure. Um, So I'm an education journalist. Um, I'm a contributor to Forbes.com on education, and I have a book coming out, I think, uh, today when this podcast will be airing, August 6th, called The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It. That's pretty impressive. So we, we
0: can't wait to to talk with you more about... knowledge gap and how you know you're using research to propose that we do fix it and so that's going to be our focus of our podcast today. Um, Melissa did you want to add anything?
1: No I think I'm ready to jump in and start talking about this. I just know that you know we've talked a lot in our our podcast so far about this idea of building knowledge so I'm really excited to talk to someone who's written a whole book about it.
2: And and I'm excited to talk to practitioners who are in the trenches because, um, I mean, I have talked to a lot of teachers um, in the course of researching this book, but I always learn something from talking to teachers. Yes, exciting. So um,
1: as you know, Natalie, um, we're kind of doing this podcast for people who are starting to implement these building knowledge, these curricula that are around building knowledge. Um, so I know you wrote a whole book and there's so much to say, but if you could give us kind of the snapshot of what does research actually say about the connection between building knowledge and reading comprehension?
2: Well, briefly, um, I think I'll start with what's called the baseball study because I think that always, um, you know, really makes this concrete. Uh, so, Back in the late 80s, a couple of young researchers came up with this really ingenious experiment. Um, they figured there probably were a lot of kids who knew about something about baseball but weren't sort of generally good readers. And what they wanted to do was sort of tease out what's more important background knowledge of a topic or sort of general reading comprehension ability. And so they gave, um, about 60 junior high school students, um, a passage to read about baseball and they divided them into four groups, depending on how much they knew about baseball and how well they had scored on a general reading comprehension test. And what they found was, I mean, you would expect the kids with high reading scores and high baseball knowledge, they did the best. And the kids with low reading scores and low baseball knowledge, they did the worst. But what was surprising was the kids who were supposedly poor readers but knew a lot about baseball did a lot better than the supposedly good readers who didn't know a lot about baseball. And they did almost as well as the good readers who did know a lot about baseball. So this was pretty convincing evidence that what is more important than general reading comprehension skills is specific knowledge of the topic you're reading about, which goes along with vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And that experiment has been replicated in many different contexts. Um, And, you know, there are different theories to explain uh, why this is so, but I mean, I, I think it's kind of common sense. If you are reading let's say, at the abstract of an article on molecular biology and you don't happen to have a background in molecular biology, you know that's going to be tough going. You're not going to understand a lot of the words and the concepts. Yeah. Uh, I think what what is more difficult for a lot of certainly educated adults is to imagine how much some kids don't know when they're confronted with, you know, grade-level, suppose quote-unquote grade-level reading passages. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's just easy to look at one of those if you look at a passage from a common core test or something and you think, oh, that's pretty straightforward. But um, it, actually for a lot of kids, it's just as mystifying as if you were looking at an abstract of an article on molecular biology. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. <laughs> yeah, I wish you could see us.
0: We're, I'm sure Melissa is. Uh, we're like nodding our heads. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Great. Yes to all of that. Um. So So in that, like, how, how do you recommend that we, we fix it or we address it? Like, we know that this is a problem that, that is happening, um, that, that we're used, we're teaching skills versus, um, building knowledge. And yet we still continue to teach skills. So, you know, what, what, how are you saying that we should address this concern or this issue?
1: And can I just jump into before you answer that, Natalie? Sure. Along with the, like, how to fix it. I'm wondering too, like, if you know anything about the why it came out that we teach these skills, even though we this is, you yeah. said the study's been around since the '80s, um, but even when I went through my education school, you know, I learned how to teach reading through teaching reading comprehension skills. You yeah. know, like. Why why did that happen?
0: <laughs> why is it still? No, happening? The, why, <laughs> yeah,
2: that, the why and the how. Give us the why and the how. <clears throat> <clears throat> okay, so the why. Um, and this really was, you know, one of the I mean, I wanted to write this book because this was a hugely important problem that it seemed nobody was paying attention yes. to. But I also did want to figure out where did this come from? Um, you know, and I think for to an outsider, certainly to me going into some elementary school classrooms, when I understood what I was actually looking at and spent enough time to see what was going on, it, it's just like it was like, "What, what? <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Why are people doing this? It just doesn't seem like the, an intuitive way to teach. and um, it, it, there's a long history of this. I think the deep roots go back to the progressive education movement, you know which began about a hundred years ago, and it, not that the the founders of that movement Intended reading comprehension strategy instruction to be the dominant mode uh, in elementary classrooms, but there was an idea in a basic idea in progressive or constructivist pedagogical theory that it is better um, for students to construct or discover knowledge for themselves than to be directly mm. instructed and so that kind of fed into this idea, well well, we're not like we're not just filling up their brains with facts, we are giving them the tools to discover and and acquire knowledge for themselves through their own reading when we give students reading comprehension skills. And so that that approach to reading comprehension in terms of skills goes back many decades and, and certainly was pretty well entrenched by the 50s or the 60s. But then in the latter part of the 20th century, it, it really went on steroids. Um, mm-hmm. there, you know, there was a reaction against these, the, the reading textbooks, the basal readers um, mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that did use this skill focused idea. So let's let's practice finding the main idea. Mm-hmm. And some teachers in what was then the whole language movement, um, they kind of, you know, so the whole language movement. The theory was you just around kids with books, and, and they'll figure out how to read and, and how to understand what they read. And some teachers felt like, you know, they kind of talked themselves out of a job. They, <laughs> what are we supposed to do? <laughs> right? We're supposed to be teaching them reading, and we're just sitting here. Um, and also, there seemed to be some kids who weren't understanding what they were reading. So mm-hmm. they came across, yeah. They came across some um, psychological research that was being done in the 70s and 80s on um, sort of what, what do expert readers do? Uh, what is it that makes them such good readers? And the researchers concluded that they, they had, they did these sort of metacognitive strategies unconsciously, but they asked themselves questions as they went along mm-hmm. and they maybe summarized. Visualized. Yeah. <laughs> visualized, right. And so that morphed into Strategies, we can teach comprehension yes. strategies. Yes. And that was originally supposed to be different from the comprehension skills in the basils. Mm-hmm. Uh, but over the years, they kind of became merged. And then, last uh, sort of piece of this puzzle in 2000, there was this report issued by a blue ribbon panel called the National Reading Panel, mm-hmm. yep. which endorsed things like systematic phonics instruction. Um, that was resisted in, in a lot of corners of the education world, but Mm -hmm. one of the things they endorsed was teaching reading comprehension strategies. They found evidence that teaching certain reading comprehension strategies could boost comprehension. And that had a huge impact as well. So, um, only 15% of teacher training programs included, uh, comprehension instruction as part of their curriculum. Ten years later, that went from 15% to 75%. Wow. Wow. Yeah. But the problem is what the National Reading Panel failed to mention was that background knowledge is even more important than... These reading comprehension strategies. In fact, they don't. The strategies don't work unless you have enough background knowledge to understand the passage. Right. In the first, place. <laughs> so you can ask yourself all the questions. <laughs> They're alive all them day long, about. right? <laughs> um, and and just last thing I would add is so you know the National Reading Panel was looking at studies that lasted six weeks of a of just a handful of different strategies. What we do is we, we teach reading strategies for way more than six weeks, mm. you know, we do it day after day, year after year. Yeah. And most of what is being taught in classrooms has nothing to do with what the National Reading Panel endorsed.
0: Yes. I have so many questions before you get to the how question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, sure. Uh, well, first of all, I just want to know, like, have you had an education
2: background? Um, I would say, I mean, I have a very limited kind of education background. I have taught writing and English as a second language to highly motivated adults. That's but. really different <laughs> from what most <laughs> teachers
0: do. Yeah. I just think it's so impressive because you've taken the time. I mean, obviously your your career demanded that you do that, but you've taken the time to really dig into all of this research in order to consider why we're not applying it. And mm-hmm. and it's not you know, it's something that is in um, mine and Melissa's direct field and and something that still to us can be quite an anomaly because we're surrounded by it. But because you've been able to have that, like, I think lens of like zooming yep. out to zoom in, mm-hmm. it's been like I think that your perspective is just so important. And it really speaks to the fact that anyone can understand this, this phenomena, right? Like that <laughs> that it's not just about educators. This is this is about how we're. We're building the next generation of kids, of people in this world who are ready for college and career and and just life in general. So
2: yeah, well, I do think. I mean, I think this, this is an argument for you know journalists or some sort of outsider coming in and like an anthropologist or or you know just a scientific researcher trying to make sense of, of what is going mm-hmm. on. Because anybody who's inside a situation has a limited perspective on that situation. Um, It's not just teachers. I mean, you know, and I think teachers haven't necessarily seen this big picture because everything that surrounds them is telling them this is the way to teach reading. You know, Mm -hmm. this is what we do. They don't question it or they're not aware of any other way to do it. Um, And I I don't know. I mean, it's complicated as to why outsiders, policymakers, education reformers, journalists, why they haven't. Recognize what's really going on, but, um, yeah. yeah, I, you know, and I have to say it, I didn't come to the, all this understanding all at once. It took me quite <laughs> do I mean, I remember just going around and saying, you mean this, you mean that, you know, <laughs> it just really took me a while, um, to, to under, untangle it all.
1: Yeah. yeah. I was going to say the similar thing that like when I was in grad school, I was, um, in a master's program to become a reading specialist. And, Everything was based on the National Reading Panel. Um, But at the same time, I was teaching, you know, I was in the classroom. So there was there's no time to do that step back and say, is this the right thing? You know, you're just like, this is what the National Reading Panel says and seems like the right thing to me. So I'm putting it into practice. So it's it's just so beneficial to have someone like you said, to have that step back moment and just look at the big picture. And are we really doing what's right? Yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: and I think too, to add to that, Melissa, I had the same experience, right? Um, I think that it's, you trust that you're doing the right thing. You trust that what you're being given in higher education is what you should be getting and what kids are deserving of. And so you trust this research, you trust how it's being implemented. And, you know, I think that it, it took a long time to shift our mindset as well when we we realized what we're doing isn't working and why. And so then that's where we came to realize like it is about building knowledge and we started to dig into research and, you know, both independently and then as a team, Melissa and I started to do that and, and share different resources. And that I think has been just the the, the hunger for knowledge on that topic has been the driving force behind accessing it. So,
2: mm-hmm. yeah. you know. But how did, how did you guys, um, was it through wit and wisdom being adopted by the Baltimore city school system as a curriculum or how did you guys start questioning you know, what you'd been taught during your training? Yeah,
1: yeah. I can speak to that. I can say for sure it was, um, the review of the curriculum that we had in place and then. The adoption of wit and wisdom, which both had a very huge emphasis on building knowledge, which was completely unfamiliar to me before that. Which was only what was that, Lori? In the past that two year.
0: years, yeah, that's <laughs> right? Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's be, yeah, exactly right. Same, same. Um, I think it for me, it was it was that paradigm shift of this is what I did in the classroom all these years. Then this is what I coached at a district level. It is not working why? And yes. mm-hmm. when that audit came back, and then when we started to adopt and Wisdom, and we were just stunned. like we mm-hmm. sat there and together and we were like, this makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. And It's got yeah. the research to back it up. And, and we were like, we, you know, independently and together, we wondered, like, why has this not happened before? Like, why not content knowledge? Why not vocabulary? And, you know, I think that I've come to the realization that it's, it's just, it's the, it's the more difficult route. You know, when you teach skills, you can put your finger on visualizing and, and essentially say, yes, this student understands visualizing what, and it's separate Mm -hmm. of the text. It's, it's that skill. So I, it's way harder.
2: You know, I mean, one of the people I talked to in researching the book was Doug Lamov, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: um, who you may have heard of. And um, and he used to be a believer in skill, skills and he has come around to be a big believer in knowledge. But one of my questions was why? why, even in the charter school sector, which questions a lot of sort of progressive education beliefs, I mean, they were even more extreme in focusing on these reading comprehension skills mm-hmm. than a lot of traditional public schools. And I said, you know, like, why, why, why was that? You guys hadn't, all been even through ed school. And so, you you know, what made this, this, the charter sector adopt this approach? And he came up with a number of theories, but one of them was that it was sort of like a beautiful dream that you could do this fairly easy thing of just teaching these skills. You didn't have to do all the hard work of figuring out like what content to teach and how to really build knowledge, all of that is more difficult. Mm -hmm. And that you could just do this fairly easy thing and it would unlock, it would be the key that would unlock all the knowledge in the world for your students.
0: Yeah.
1: I you made me think of things that we've done the past few years too of even just like text annotation, which is a great, you know, skill to teach students how to do. But we I think we did approach it with that lens of like, you know, if we just teach them how to annotate really well they'll understand whatever is put in front of them, which is clearly not
2: true.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Or if we teach them academic talk structures that they'll be able to talk about it, which if they don't understand it, then they won't. (laughs)
2: Regardless of the structures. Right. And (laughs) it's not like those things are, you know, not important and they're not wrong. It's just, it's a question of what you put in the foreground the skills or the content. yeah, And you got to put the content in the foreground and use the skills to, you know, to help students get at that content. Yeah. And I think you just
1: hit on something, Natalie, too, that um, Lori and I have been talking about as well is like, there's this misconception too, that it's one or the other, right? That if you're Mm -hmm. teaching the content, well then forget about the skills, forget about those reading strategies. Um, But we've been talking about it's, really not one or the other and it's really not even just both but it's like you need that content so that when i have the content i can then annotate my text and then find the main idea and do all those other things in a right. way that yeah can you speak a little to that too in even better than i did <laughs>
2: <laughs> you, you did a good job think, um, you, you know i think that a lot of these skills and strategies if if they are used in service of helping kids understand Content and complex text, it's just good teaching, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't you mm-hmm. don't want to just dump a load of facts on kids and then not ask them to make connections between those facts or figure right. out what's really important here? Why did this happen? and what do you you know what do you think will happen next? I mean, all of those things that we teach as skills can be um, harnessed to to content and uh, used to get kids to develop those analytical abilities that we're striving for. It's just, you know, putting those skills, making them the uh, objective, teaching the skills as like as though they were free floating things that were generally applicable is is where we're going off track. Mm -hmm. And in fact, asking kids those questions rather than saying things like, hey, so what do you think is going on here? <laughs> there was actually yeah. a study that was done a, a long time ago that's not very well known, but um, where they basically, they took two classrooms and one of them, they had teachers ask these, well, what do you think the author's purpose is kind of questions. And in the other one, they just had the, Teachers ask, but, you know, no particular training, just like, so what do you think is going on here? How does this relate to what happened before? <laughs> and the <laughs> students in the open-ended question classrooms actually understood the material better, mm. but they also had much richer class discussions because it's much more fun and interesting to talk about what's actually in the text than you know, this sort of abstract skill of making inferences or what an author's purpose is.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And to even get to the point where you could talk about the author's purpose, you have to have that general understanding of what's going on, right? (laughs) And I think that's what, I've seen that a lot in classrooms too, where it's like, you know, we read something and then right away you get that really deep question about the author's purpose and you just see the deer in headlights kind of looks from kids that are like, What? <laughs> like I barely know what I just read, let alone tell you what the purpose is that the author had when writing it,
2: you know absolutely. <laughs> I actually was in a classroom in a charter school that I, I won't name here but I mean this was the charter school that was recommended to me because it focused on building knowledge and I, what I saw gave me real pause and one of the things I was in I think it was a third grade classroom um, and they were reading this pretty dense text on domestication of animals in ancient civilizations mm-hmm. and how that came about and the teacher read aloud the first pretty dense paragraph and then she paused and the question she asked was so what's the author's argument? <laughs> One right. one <laughs> and she didn't say, so why do you think people started domesticating animals?"
0: You know. I mean, yeah. Um. I. I yeah. And I, I. For me, that I think that that speaks to to my personal belief, and I know this is one of. Uh, it's actually the first charge in Unbound Ed that adopting a standards-aligned curriculum. Mm-hmm. I just think that teachers should be master implementers. I've said it before. I will say it a hundred more times. Teachers should be master implementers, not curriculum writers. And right. so, you know, when they are given a curriculum that allows them to, you know, make it applicable to their students, but use it as a fidelity framework um, for accessing standards, that's where the real win happens. So that that example that you just shared, right? That teacher's reading that first paragraph, then what happens after that? They're having scaffolded TDQs to access that bigger learning that more, uh, greater task, but not right away. And mm-hmm. so then it's, you know, it's, it's a better way to access it rather than them sitting there at nine o'clock at night, trying to whip up their TDQs that may or may not be standards aligned. So
2: right. I totally
0: yep. agree. I hear that and I see it, see it. And, um, that's one of the reasons that drove me to, to work for, um, Win Wisdom.
2: Right. And yes, until you asked me earlier, like what can be done about this whole problem? And I do yes. think the first step, not the only step, but the first step <laughs> is adopting good content focused curriculum that, you know, focus that focuses on building kids knowledge in a coherent way rather than on just building these supposed skills. Um, and I do think that once that's in place, then you need support for teachers professional development coaching grounded in the specifics of the curriculum. So not how to foster critical thinking in the abstract, but how to foster critical thinking about, you know, domestication of animals or whatever the actual topic is. And I I think one thing that's going on here with teachers is their, their training and their habits have inclined them against asking questions that are But they see as Mm low-level questions. You know, there's that um, Bloom's taxonomy thing Mm -hmm. that's usually presented as a pyramid with comprehension and knowledge at the bottom and, like, analysis and synthesis at the top as though analysis and synthesis are really better. So why waste time on comprehension and building knowledge when you can just skip to analysis and synthesis? But, of Mm -hmm. course, that's not what Bloom meant. (laughs) You got to have the comprehension and the knowledge first before you move up to analysis and synthesis. Yeah. And it doesn't yeah. help that you might
1: have someone coming into your room with a checkbox that's looking for those higher level questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. And if they yeah, don't absolutely. see them then something might happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that doesn't help either. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and Natalie, I was going to say, too, that, you know, you mentioned, like, and, Laura, you did, too, right? The curriculum is so important, and I think what we've seen in this one year of implementing Wit and Wisdom is some people who have embraced it fully, you know, teachers are just like, yes, <laughs> like, this is it, and it's working, mm-hmm. and then we have other teachers who just, even from the start, have just pushed against, um, and I think, like, it's pretty natural that some people would do that, and I'm wondering if you have, like, more thoughts on, that you kind of touched on some like of the whys, <laughs> why yeah. that natural push against, and like what what we can do to help that.
2: Yeah, and you know, I I, I saw you had a podcast on uh, earlier podcast on the Mad River School District in Ohio, mm-hmm. and um, which is also implementing Wit and Wisdom. And I had a conversation with an instructional coach there about this same. You know, she was saying the same thing. You know, there's some some teachers have embraced. Wit wisdom and some are pushing back against it and uh and so i you know this is a big and complex topic but i think there, there are three basic um categories of obstacles and one of them is intellectual is just um i mean part of it there's some teachers like you who just weren't aware of this and um were delighted to to find out about it and were you know, like yes this is, this makes sense yeah but then there, there are other teachers who it's not just a question of lack of awareness. It's more suspicion or, or hostility, um, partly to, um, you know, things that that claim to be based in evidence because evidence-based means something different to teachers than they do to, than it does to scientists. Right. Scientists, something based in evidence is, you know, hey, you can't argue with that. It's good. But <laughs> a lot of teachers, it either... You know, it, it, it conjures up notions of a somebody in a lab coat telling them what to do who doesn't really know what it's like in the classroom.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And and also given the number of uh, initiatives foisted upon teachers that are claim to be evidence-based and often really aren't, right? It could just raise their red flags and make them suspicious if you claim something is based in evidence. So that that's one set of problems. I think another um set of problems are emotional Mm. and, um, and that they're, they're linked to the intellectual obstacles in some ways. But, um, I think, you know, I I, I, certainly the, the the instructional coach I talked to in the mad river district was talking about how a lot of teachers are, and I've heard this from others are fearful that, um, the kid, this stuff is going to be too difficult for kids Mm -hmm. that, you know, not developmentally or age appropriate. We've heard that. Yeah, and um, and I think you know this is comes out of of a, a an abundance of concern for children. You don't want to frustrate them, and you know. I, I, but I do think we also underestimate a lot what kids can actually do. Absolutely. I <laughs> mean, yeah. what I've seen in classrooms I've been in has been amazing. What seven, six, seven-year-olds can do. But I also think there's a, there's another kind of fear or anxiety, which is the teachers own understandable anxiety when he or she is asked to teach something that you know that you don't really understand yourself mm-hmm. and yeah what um so for example in the wit and wisdom curriculum i know that there are works of art that are incorporated into yeah. it and the coach in mad river mentioned um a teacher who was resisting a particular work of art that she was supposed to discuss with the students because she said it she thought it would be scary for the students mm-hmm. and i said well what you know, well, what was scary about it? She said, well, really, the, the coach said it was just a sort of abstract landscape. I think what was going on, she said, is that the teacher was kind of scared right. because she didn't understand it and she didn't know what to say about yeah. it. Yeah,
1: yeah. I bring up one of our modules a lot, which is about the um, like um medieval time <laughs> period and that the, the first reaction teachers have is t- students are going to hate that. <laughs> and I even had that <laughs> reaction when I saw it and I think it is... Almost sometimes like Canterbury Tales is one of the texts in it. And I think that is part of it, too, is like, I'm a little scared of that. I, <laughs> I don't really know much about that time period. I don't know the Canterbury Tales that well. I'd be a little yeah. scared to teach it. So
0: I, I get that for sure. Yeah. yeah, I think that speaks to the shift where teachers don't have to be the holder of all of the knowledge anymore. It's it, that we're learning together and growing together. And it's about equity and access versus I'm dumping all this knowledge upon you. So, uh, you know, when t- if t- I think that, that when teachers can kind of embrace that mindset, that speaks to that teacher fear and that emotional obstacle that, you know, you're
2: you're working. For. Well, I'd like I actually would push back against that a little bit. I mean, I do think, um, you know, that that is sort of the progressive ideal is, you know, that we're all learning together and it's not really the teacher is the source of knowledge and authority, but um, I do think that it's best for the teacher to know more than the students. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. <laughs> about yeah. About what he or she is teaching. And I think what can happen with a curriculum like wit and wisdom or one that I'm more familiar with, which is core knowledge, language arts, which you know has second graders learning about the war of 1812. And there are a lot of second grade teachers out there who don't know much about the war of 1812 yeah. Yeah. because there are a lot of American adults who don't. But the first time around, maybe the second time around, it can, you know, you're feeling your way, but once you've taught it a couple of times, then you do know more about the war of 1812 or what or the canterbury tales yes. than your students do and then you can become more comfortable with the material put your own spin on mm-hmm. it um but i do i do think teachers they're <clears throat> learning along with students at the beginning but ultimately they need to know more about yes. these things than the students yeah yes,
0: i agree I, I think that what i didn't articulate clearly was um that the text is the driver of the knowledge so mm. The teacher is pulling from the text, but I totally agree with you. And yes, that's an excellent point. Thank you for what
1: you got. (laughs) And we were just, um, I was having a conversation actually with our director of literacy this morning about just this, which was like, how do we, how do we help teachers build their knowledge a little bit around some of these more Mm -hmm. of the like scary topics, if you'll want to call it that, um, Mm -hmm. even just so they have the confidence going into the teaching, you know, before that, so they're not going in just with what the students have, but going in with a little bit more confidence about the artwork or one of the texts, if it's a little tough. So we were just talking about that today. We don't have answers yet, but (laughs) (laughs) we're working on it.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, ideally, and in in some countries, there's a national curriculum, and that you know, you you know what you, if you're going to be going off to be a third grade teacher, you know what you're going to be covering, and as part of your teacher training, you can become steeped in that content mm-hmm. and yeah. also in how best to teach it. Yep. Yeah, but we don't have that in this country. um Although, I mean, we're never going to have a national curriculum. Yeah, right. But And it's in a place like Baltimore that now has adopted wit and wisdom, you could have, theoretically at least, and I think this may be happening to some extent, a teacher training program that is, before teachers get into the classroom pre-service, they will learn about, you know, the Canterbury Tales, Mm -hmm. um, so that it's not a deer in the headlights situation once they have to teach it.
0: Yes. Right. Yep. And I think Melissa and I recorded a a podcast about summer beach reads for <laughs> specifically, um, in the hopes that teachers would not only prepare them, you know, themselves through the reading the text and, and trying and to internalize it, but so taking time to, um, access resources within the community that would provide more insight into like the depth of knowledge that they'll need to teach these texts. So, yeah, we totally mm-hmm. agree. <laughs>
2: Great. Yeah.
0: Did you finish with your obstacles, Natalie?
2: Well, I guess there's one other category. I said there were three categories. You don't if want to cut you off. I didn't say that, but. <laughs> there are. Yes. Um, I, the, the, there's those intellectual problems, suspicion of evidence. There's the emotional problems, fear and anxiety. And I didn't go through every single aspect, yeah. but I think I hit the high points. But thirdly, even if a teacher has intellectually and emotionally embraced a new way of teaching, there's the problem of habit um, behavior and teaching, you know, is this, as you know, uh, is a really complex activity. You're juggling a zillion things at the same time. And so it's very easy to fall back into longstanding habits at, rather, even if you want to change them. And I think the only thing that works there is just, is, time and support. And of course, uh, a good curriculum that is going to guide you and and maybe not just give you the content, but also give you the the kinds of questions that, you know, would be appropriate to ask. And just
0: to just to be clear, you're speaking about teacher habits, right? Not student habits. Yes, teacher. Yeah, I would. I would agree.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think I don't know if you touched on this yet or not. But one thing that really struck me about these thoughts that you had was um, and I'll make it a little personal, is if I look back at my teaching career where I did focus on these skills and strategies and didn't have this um, you know, building content or building knowledge part of it, you know, I kind of feel bad, right? Like there is like that. I know. Like, uh, yeah. you know, like I that. how do
2: I, guilt. I exactly guilt. like how do
1: I deal with that knowing that, you know, I just taught students for how many years in this other way that I You know, I don't know if I want to embrace that.
0: (laughs) It's hard. It's hard. I mean, yeah. I mean, so so the world
2: with yeah. So there are two sort of related phenomena there. One is like if if you do accept that this has what you've been doing hasn't been working, then you feel guilt. But it can also prevent you sort of from from accepting evidence Mm -hmm. that what you're doing hasn't been working. There's this thing that psychologists call confirmation bias, Mm -hmm. which means that when we can well, it's it's If you confront evidence that is consistent with your deeply held beliefs, you're more likely to believe that evidence. But the flip side of that is, if you confront evidence that conflicts with your deeply held beliefs, you are much more likely to reject that evidence mm-hmm. because it's very difficult, especially in a profession like teaching where you're devoting your lives to helping people. And then somebody comes along and says, actually, you know what? You haven't been helping people. Right. Yep. <laughs> That's a very difficult pill to follow. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah. And I could see why I would just put a stake in the ground and say, no, what I've been doing has been working. I'm going to keep doing that.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not that we recommend that. We don't. We
1: want people to embrace it,
2: but maybe (laughs) be aware. But it's a natural human tendency that we are all subject to.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah.
1: Yes. Um, I had a question about, um, I I mostly teach in the middle school and high school. um, And I'm wondering if you have any information or thoughts about what does this look like in higher grade levels? We adopted and um, Wisdom K through eight. Um, we are currently looking for curriculum for high school and have really kind of batted around the idea of, does this building knowledge look the same in high school? Is it different? Um, is it important or not? Um, so just seeing if you had any thoughts about that.
2: Yeah. That's a very good question, and you know you may be familiar with this thing called the Matthew effect. Mm-hmm. Or, um, just the longer you wait, and the Matthew effect. Just anybody who might be <laughs> not familiar with that. It refers to um, it's, it's an allusion to the Gospel of Matthew and the, the passage that essentially means the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Yeah. And is applied to reading uh, and reading comprehension. It means the kids who start out with more knowledge there it's easier for them to read and to acquire more knowledge from their reading. And so they keep acquiring more and more knowledge while the kids who start out with less knowledge, it's harder for them to read and acquire knowledge. So they keep falling further and further behind. And what that means is the longer you wait to start building knowledge with those kids who start out with less, the harder it's going to be to close two kinds of gaps. One is the gap between those kids and the kids who were luckier and started out with more knowledge. But the other is the gap between what we assume a student knows and what that student might actually know. Mm-hmm. So it's a good point. Especially if you and and this uh, focus on reading comprehension skills and strategies continues often through middle school, especially where. Reading test scores are low. So, yep. you know, you get kids start in high school who've never really been exposed to history, to science, do not have those concepts and vocabulary stored in their long term memory. And all of a sudden, they're supposed to be learning about World War II or whatever, and they don't know what Europe is, what the difference is between a city and a country, and all sorts of things that you really need to know to understand something like World War II. So, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think if, if, if you're implementing a curriculum with students who have come through K through eight using something like Wit and Wisdom, you are, and and it's a population that tends to have less educated parents so they haven't been picking up a lot of this kind of knowledge outside of school right right you have huge gaps in background knowledge to conf- that, that you're going to confront that students are going to confront yep. um and then the question becomes well how can you possibly fill those in right and you don't you don't want to sort of start them on a second grade wit and wisdom right because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> they're not second graders um so and and I think that this message about the importance of building knowledge to be very discouraging for teachers at the high school and the, even the middle school level mm-hmm. because they're like, oh, what it's are camp. we supposed to do yep. about years of accumulated deficits? Um, but I think there are things that can work. It's not. It's harder to fill in knowledge gaps at the high school level, but it is not impossible. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll tell you the. So there are two things that I'm aware of that can work. One is. Intensive tutoring, so one on one or two on one tutoring, not in reading comprehension skills, but you know, it, like you're learning about the Civil War and you don't understand it. All right, let's work through what you don't understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that unfortunately is very hard to, to scale up. Yeah. <laughs> um, of course, yep. The other thing that I have seen work, and and um, I'm pretty intimately familiar with this, is an approach to teaching writing that is grounded in. Whatever content you're trying to teach, and begins at the sentence level, because um, first of all, a lot of high school students don't really write good sentences. they may not even really know the difference between a sentence and a sentence fragment. So if you ask them to write an essay or even a paragraph, you're you know if they don't if they can't really write a good sentence, you're not going to get a good essay or a good paragraph mm-hmm. but the other the other reason it's important to start at the sentence level is that writing is is really the most difficult thing we ask kids to do in school. Mm -hmm. It's really harder than reading, but there's much less research uh, on it, and there's much less attention paid to how to teach kids to write. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you just ask kids to write at length, not only are they not going to acquire writing skills, but they're going to be so overwhelmed and cognitively overloaded that they really can't focus on the content they're t- supposed to be absorbing or what they're trying to express, so to modulate that cognitive load, you know, the sentence is a very useful activity for that. And it is also when it's not overwhelming, writing may be the most powerful lever we have for building knowledge. So powerful that it can work even at the high school level.
0: And Natalie, and I just want to want to ask um, when you talked about that you're talking about writing in response to text? Yes?
2: Yeah, in response to text or content of of some kind, it's often gonna be, and I should add that, um, so I co-authored another book a couple of years ago called The Writing Revolution, Mm -hmm. which describes this method of writing instruction, which was devised by my co-author, not by me, a veteran educator named Judith C. Hockman, um, and it's often called the Hockman method, but Judy Hockman also, uh, five years ago founded a nonprofit also called the writing revolution. And, uh, one of the other things I do in my spare time is I'm, I'm chair of the board of that nonprofit. So, um, Oh, that's fabulous. That's how we know all about this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason I'm, I was asking is because I feel like, um, you know, we've seen everything in classrooms, you know, including, Writing that is completely disconnected to text or knowledge, um, and so I just wanted to make sure that we clarified for for anybody listening exactly what you were
2: you were speaking of
0: when you were talking through that.
2: Right. So most of the writing instruction that is done, I don't. I mean, certainly the elementary level, to the extent that kids write at all or are supposedly taught to write, they are usually writing. Personal narratives, or more recently, um, you know there could be a separate writing curriculum that has the writing opinion pieces about whether there should be chocolate milk in the cafeteria. yeah it's not related to anything they're actually you know that they're supposed to be learning as part of the main curriculum, and that is a huge waste of um you know a, 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 as I said, this potential lever of building knowledge, but also it it's not like if you can write a good essay about your trip to the amusement park, you're going to be able to write a good essay about, you know, the war of 1812 or whatever. <laughs> it, it doesn't transfer in that way. If you want kids to write analytically and, and to develop both their writing skills and their knowledge and analytical abilities, you've got to have them write about what you're trying to teach them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Natalie, can I just clarify real quick, to make sure I'm understanding.
2: <laughs> sure. Um, so my understanding has always been
1: that if you are, building students' knowledge, right, then they'll have something to bring to writing and it'll make their writing better. But are you also Mm -hmm. arguing that the writing actually helps them to build knowledge as well because they're, I don't, putting it into, yes, they're they're, they're putting their thoughts into their own words and
2: on paper and like concretizing their thoughts. (laughs) Exactly. It is, it's a two-way kind of thing. You need some knowledge initially in order to write. I mean, you know, it may be difficult to read about a topic for which you don't have much background knowledge, but just try writing right. about it. It's <laughs> impossible. I mean,
0: how many so times do you sit there with an, like an empty computer? I remember in high school sitting there and being like, I just
2: don't understand.
1: I don't know what to write about.
2: <laughs> yes, absolutely. So you need a, a base of knowledge to begin with, but then in the process of writing, several things happen. I mean, one is that you may realize you didn't actually know as much as you thought you did or you didn't really understand what you thought you understood because when you write about it that becomes very clear or when you try to write about it or it becomes clear to the teacher Um, and you also are analyzing you you know if you even writing a sentence using a word like because you have to figure out why something happened so you're putting those dots together and also in the process of putting this material into your own words, you are cementing it into your long-term memory. Um, There are other effects in cognitive psychology that um, mimic what goes on in writing. As I said, you know, cognitive psychologists for some reason have not really studied the writing process very much, but there's something called, for example, the protege effect, which is the boost that people get in, in understanding and retention of information when they have to explain it to someone else, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what writing's all about. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Oh,
1: that's so good. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well,
1: um, do you have anything else to share with us, Natalie, that we haven't touched on yet today? Um,
2: you know, I think we've covered quite a bit. I mean, um, yes, there is have. more in my book. <laughs> <laughs> so, if, if uh, listeners, if you have had your appetite whetted, um, there's, there's a, you know. I think one of the most um, powerful, maybe I hope parts of the book is something that was kind of an afterthought. I decided to follow two different elementary level classrooms through a school year, Mm
0: -hmm. one that was
2: using a skills focused approach, the standard approach, and one that was using a knowledge building approach. And in this case, it was the core knowledge language arts curriculum. Mm -hmm. And. You know, I really think that those scenes, which are pretty much, you know, I don't not really commenting on them editorially. It's really just here's what's going on in this classroom and here's what's going on in this classroom. And, you know, they're not identical classrooms, one's first grade, one's second grade, um, but they're all low income kids. They're all students of color. The teachers in both classrooms are hardworking, dedicated, good teachers. Mm -hmm. The difference really but that what what has caused this hugely significant difference between these classrooms is the curriculum that's being used so um i hope that people will read the book um and see that for themselves and um as i said the the book's coming out august 6th which i think is today uh, when people are listening it's um the knowledge gap and you can find it you know, through Amazon. The publisher is Avery, which is a division of uh, Penguin Random House. And there's also a page on the Penguin Random House website about the book. So um, I just really hope that this gets into the public conversation because uh, it absolutely needs to. And for some reason, it hasn't been there. Yeah.
0: We know all of our listeners are going to run out and grab the book. And (laughs) Because we have a book club coming up that's starting. So we want to get the book in your hands. We'll start reading it so that you can be prepared to launch into our book club. <laughs>
1: yeah, We'll at least have our conversation about it for sure. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, terrific. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad you're doing that. Thanks. Uh, and I think you know I, teachers, I think will have a lot to say about this um, about this book and and uh, and also I hope the general public. but you know, Teachers are the ones who are in a position to really do something pretty directly.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And and I would add leaders. Like, to me, it's so, <clears throat> you know, teachers and leaders, um, that's one of the things I feel like that leadership mindset, shifting that and, you know, going yes. not only going top down, but also bottom-up, side-in, whatever you want to say, all of it needs to just be Yes,
2: it Um, it, it has to be multi-pronged. I mean, if if you just try to reach teachers, um, you know, if they're not being supported by an administration or policymakers, if they're being told to do things that conflict with what the evidence Indicates they should be doing. It's going to be really tough for for them to continue and for this approach to take hold. But by the same token, if you just do, if you just focus on the policymakers and the administrators, um, as you guys know, you know, teachers have a long history of closing the door and doing whatever they want. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. <laughs> if they don't understand why it's important to do this, then it it won't happen. Yeah.
0: yeah. And I think um, I just am having a brainstorm for one of our next podcasts because. For me, it's, you know, not only thinking about choosing a high quality curriculum, but what if I have a curriculum as a teacher that is not of the highest quality, what then? So, I, mm-hmm. you know, I think this kind of leads to a couple different thoughts around next steps for Melissa and I around what we could bring into like on this podcast next so we're we're really
2: grateful to
0: have you here
1: (laughs) oh thank you so much
2: (laughs) well this has been a real pleasure and uh really enjoyed talking to you guys thanks so much for inviting me
1: yeah we appreciate it